0: this is getting out of hand now there are two of them where's your innovation huh sequels suck
1: do the same thing everyone's happy it's
0: all about money boys here we go again stab two who would want to do that sequels suck
1: hey guys and welcome back to another episode of franchise fatigue this is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time I am your host, James Hamrick, and I am joined with my co-host, Gabe Green. What's going on?
0: Hey, I just woke up fairly recently, and I'm not entirely sure if I'm going to be uh, all that coherent
1: for this episode. Not a morning person. I have, my job has made me become a morning person. I'm waking up either, like, 20 minutes either before or after eight, just regularly, and that would have been unthinkable for me a, a few months ago.
0: I had a job for about two years where I had to be there at seven and it was an hour and 45 minutes away. Oh my And gosh. it still
1: didn't make me a morning person. It just didn't
0: take. So it was like with that job. Nope. Right back to like about 10 o'clock. That's what it should be. That's the way we were made. Um, so hi. Uh, we are currently talking about the Scream series. Uh, last week we talked about Scream and today we are talking about the sequel Scream 2 and I kind of miss the days where we could just stick a number in front of a sequel. You didn't have to make up this often rather cheesy uh, subtitle. I feel like the subtitles just get more and more ridiculous. Well, also, so rarely do they actually are they actually all that representative of what's in the film. They just seem to get more and more just vague and oh this like oh, something the focus group thought might be uh, cool right now.
1: I like a good subtitle. Um I like being able to associate like an actual like phrase or word or something with a movie instead of a number but on the other hand I also do like just like the overt embrace of like serialized like this is the first one two three four.
0: If they make another Iron Man stick a stupid subtitle on it I'm just gonna riot. <laughs> so yeah but before we get our discussion on Scream 2 I want to ask you guys if you enjoy this movie to please uh Head over to iTunes and uh, leave us a rating and review, and then like us on Facebook, where you can keep to date with all the latest episodes and leave feedback, and that can be right on the show. So we didn't get a lot of feedback this week, uh, but James, you want to read the one we got?
1: Yeah, we only had one person write in, uh, and one of his comments was really long, and we normally wouldn't read it, but because uh, he's the only person who commented, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read everything, and I also like a lot of what he said. Uh, so his first comment said, honestly, I dig the entire franchise, though for me it goes Scream, Scream 4, Scream 2, then Scream 3. Uh, he says, uh, Scream as a whole franchise was really brilliant at a time when horror was relegated to mostly B movie affair. Hey, I love B movies. So yeah, that was okay with me. It breathed some much needed fresh air back in the genre and revived it, particularly the slasher subgenre. It was a tongue in cheek commentary on violent horror movies and poked fun at the various tropes of slashers while at the same time, making it fresh by subverting things we'd seen done a million times before.
0: All right. Uh, so moving into the uh, main discussion of the film, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, production of this film. Um, So when Kevin Williamson uh, had pitched the original script for Scream, uh, he sweetened the deal by including the treatments uh, for two sequels. And uh, following successful test screenings of the first film, Wes Craven was offered the job to direct the two sequels. And after the film proved to be a massive hit, uh, the sequel was officially put into development in March of 1997 with Williamson writing. And they cut it out before the end of the year, which is just nuts.
1: Yeah for the cast uh all of the the primary cast of the original all returned uh this included Nev campbell david arquette Courtney cox jamie kennedy and leave schreber um also i failed to mention this last time but the voice of ghostface is roger l jackson who also voices mojo jojo on the powerpuff girls
0: and the an interesting thing is he was he was never um he was never uh, you know shown to the other actors he was always he was on set but he was kind of kept separate and they never saw his face. And like all the interviews with him on
1: like the documentaries he's kept in shadow. Like he's like for the witness protection program or something. Yeah. I think there's, there's something, I don't know if it's a book or a documentary, but there's something that refers to him as like one of Hollywood's like weirdest secrets. Just like for some reason they just like, it's this joke to just treat him as this unknown. It's really funny. But joining the cast for the sequel, our um, Sarah Michelle Geller as CC Cooper who had, like a really big year. Uh, this is kind of whenever she was blowing up. I think this is also the same year that uh, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer started. And she uh, started. Out, I know what you did last summer, which was also oh, written right. by uh, Kevin Williamson. Yeah, and so uh, this was definitely. I get maybe not a big get because she was just now blowing up, but there no, was definitely.
0: I was watching the documentary. She already was a huge star. Like she's in this film because she's Sarah Michelle Geller and she wanted to be in the film.
1: Okay. Yeah um elise neal uh as sydney's roommate hallie uh jerry o'connell as sydney's boyfriend Derek, who is also a fairly big like uh not teen star but like kind of coming out of that uh that time i could totally see his face on like a wholesome family sitcom poster oh for sure um timothy oliphant as mickey uh lewis arquette as local sheriff who is uh david arquette's actual dad um Dwayne Martin as the new cameraman, Joel. Jada Pinkett Smith as Maureen Evans. We'll you know, Pinkett that... at the time. Do what? Just pink it. Just Pinkett at the time. Oh, that's right. Um, Omar Epps as Phil Stevens, her date. Portia de Rossi and Rebecca Gayhart both appear as uh, sorority sisters, Murphy and Lois. Chris Doyle and Philip Pavel appear as different police officers. Kind of like prestigious uh, theater actor David Warner appears as the drama teacher. He's so good. Yeah. Uh, he, man, his voice is incredible.
0: The Christopher Doyle thing is weird because he's like a like a legendary cinematographer, and he's
1: just kind of randomly in here, <laughs> just popping in to say hi. Uh, Nancy O'Dell as uh she's a reporter who is actually in the first one as well. She just kind of shows up throughout the series. Um, and Laurie Metcalf, uh, who you think is Debbie Salt, but is later to be revealed as uh Mrs. Loomis. But yeah, like you said. Uh, with Michelle Geller being a big, uh, a big name as well as uh, like Timothy Timothy Oliphant was a, a bigger person. Even we have a like a cameo of Joshua Jackson in there as well that I didn't mention. Um, uh, so there's a lot of bigger up and coming.
0: Uh, don't forget the the stab cast.
1: That's right. Sorry, uh, I do have that here. Uh, Tori Spelling in a like a really really funny uh, continuation of uh, of the remark in the first one where she's like, yeah, they're probably just gonna get Tori Spelling to play me. Uh, they do in this one. Tori Spelling plays, or um, Tori Spelling is in it, Luke Wilson is in it, and Heather Graham all play themselves uh, as characters in the Stab films. But yeah, because of the success of the original, they actually really wanted to continue uh, with that idea of, of getting more household, like names with marquee value, uh, like they did with Drew Barrymore, but even more so, like by continuing with the returning cast as well as adding these other names that people recognize yeah and because of the financial success they were able to do that with relative ease so uh, shortly before filming was, was to start the
0: script leaked out onto the then uh, very, very fledgling internet spoiling uh, the entire film's ending revealing the killers um in the original script it would have been mrs loomis uh sydney's boyfriend Derek, uh her friend hallie and cotton would have all been killers hmm. i'm really not sure how that would have worked uh, so they decided you know what you do is uh, let's rewrite the entire film. And this was like right on top of filming, going into filming. So it was also complicated by the fact that uh, Kevin Williamson was off trying to get Dawson's Creek off the ground. Uh, so that meant that Craven also kind of had to come in and help do writing, and they were like kind of going back and forth between Williamson trying to get stuff together. It was just a, a total mess trying to get this film, you know the story together after having to you know re- rebuild it so late in the, so late in the game. They, impl- they implemented some really strict security measures over the new script uh, that are kind of commonplace now for highly anticipated films. Uh, Williamson said that he wrote like several dummy scripts as decoys. They um, they were printed on paper that like, couldn't be photographed. Uh, then they would number the scripts so if one got leaked, they would know who leaked it. And of course, they did the, the thing that you know George Lucas did on uh, with on Empire Strikes Back, where they wouldn't give the cast uh, you know the script or you know, or any of the information you know until right before filming. And it often meant that they were actually literally like writing the film at, you know, right before they were they were going to film it, which is usually not a good way to make a movie. Filming began in June of 1998, uh, just six months after the first film's release. And filming was divided between Atlanta, Georgia, and L.A. Uh, Peter Deming, who replaced the original DP in the first in the final week of filming for Scream, uh, came on this film as a cinematographer. Uh, and for the uh, fictional Windsor College, the Scott Agnes College outside of. Uh, Atlanta stood in for it.
1: For the post-production, due to the um, the difficulties that they had getting uh, the original through the MPAA and uh, avoiding the NC-17 uh, rating, Craven actually did something uh, pretty strategic in his attempts to just get a get a quick R rating and bypass the whole the whole thing. Uh, he said, uh, "Or he tried to like manipulate them by sending them versions of the film that had been edited, actually to focus." The gore and like accentuate it uh, to a point that he didn't even want to use. Like these weren't even things he intended on including in the film. Uh, one of the things he included was like reusing a clip of uh, Omar Epps' character being stabbed in the ear three different times. Uh, it's only once in the in the movie, uh, as well as an extended scene of Randy's death that like actually. Showed his like throat being slashed in front of the camera. He said that uh, his reason was that parts of the film that they actually wanted to keep would be more acceptable when viewed right next to the enhanced violence. But yeah, because of this, it was actually a lot easier to get this through.
0: Yeah, they, they actually they they just approved the super violent cut.
1: <laughs> so that's that's just funny. Like one of the few times where the director's actually like pulling out violence of his like on his own accord instead of being forced to. Uh, For the music, uh, Marco Beltrami returned to score, uh, though there's actually uh, a bit of Danny Elfman in this. The choral track Cassandra Aria, which plays during a scene where Campbell's character performs a play, as well as during the film's finale. Uh, And it also uses excerpts from scores of uh, Broken Arrow by Hans Zimmer, uh, as well as uh, guitar work played by Dwayne Eddy. And that's for the character Dewey. It actually replaced the original track that was written for him in, uh, in the original Scream. It's that that super 90s like doo 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 could You can very much tell that the movie dates itself with that, although I really like it. But Beltrami actually said in an interview that the, the Zimmer piece that he used was used as a placeholder um, for his own incomplete score during a test screening for producers. Uh, but the test audience reaction to it influenced the, the studio to keep the Zimmer piece and they wanted to reduce Dewey's theme which, uh, which Beltrami had already written because of, uh, because of the positive reaction it actually kind of usurped that track as like the theme for the character. The film ended up uh, releasing or premiering on December 10th 1997 at the Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood. Uh, And then it got a wide release on December 12th, 1997, which is actually like 10 days short of a year after the first one came out, which is like insane to me.
0: And which is even crazier because they didn't even start shooting till June.
1: Yeah. Like it's not like a Lord of the Rings situation where they're like, it was planned ahead of time. It's like, oh, this one did well. Let's get the second one and somehow get it done. Yeah. You kind
0: of mentioned your first viewing of this film last episode. So, what, what have your feelings of this film been over the, over the last few years?
1: Yeah. Um, so, I remember, yeah, like the first time I watched it, it w- I actually had it as my least favorite. I don't really remember really? why. I think my initial feeling was like. <laughs> they killed Randy. How dare they? <laughs> well, I think I thought, for me, it didn't really do anything new. It felt too derivative and as cheesy and ridiculous as like three was. I was like, eh, it just felt more entertaining. And then. Um, yeah, for, for whatever reason, it just, it didn't quite work as well for me. And then we rewatched all of them last year. Um, and I did it like, I completely turned around on it. Um, and I really couldn't decide which I preferred between the original or this one. Um, and I'm kind of still around that area. Like. Rewatching it for the podcast kind of confirmed the feelings that I had last year, which was just that this was way better than I gave it credit for. Um, I think the movie is super well made. Uh, and it's like, there's like anything, not anything, but most of what I find derivative about it, I actually think is like intentional. And so a lot of the criticism I had uh kind of went away and and is still not really present anymore, and i just I really really like watching this now, yeah
0: so i, I watched it shortly after seeing the first film, and I didn't like it as much as the first one, but I really enjoyed it, <laughs> and I, I hadn't seen it again till uh yesterday, and I'm pretty much the same place I enjoyed a lot, I don't like it quite as much as the first film, but it's really good and just to start off with, I really like the way this film deals with the characters like it, it, every character who returns from the first film has gone through a lot of growth or regression or just it, it, like, they're not the same. The events of the first film have affected them all in massive ways. And, and none of them feel like, Oh, you like this character in the first film. Well, here they are again, you know, just, just the way they are, or even more. So each one of them feels like they've, they were all very effective by, you know, by what happened in the previous films. Um, some of them like Randy might've, Gains gives self-confidence from it and others like uh, Dewey might have like actually been like really damaged by it. But each one of them is kind of is just is just like uniquely positioned, I think, in, in a way that, you know, great sequels do. And I, I just like that we get to see and this goes for all the sequels. I, I like that we just get to see these people you know react in realistic ways and just kind of each, you know, each film is just we get to see them in another chapter of their lives reacting to the previous chapter which I think is just one of the unique pleasures of franchise storytelling.
1: And I, like, even as the, I mean, we're not going to, you know, really be talking about three and four, but even as those get a bit more, you know, ridiculous, especially three, I still love like the genuine care and love for like these four, uh, well, you know, five until this one, um, <sighs> what ended up being these four main characters throughout.
0: they have done you wrong, Randy.
1: <laughs> But it just makes watching it a lot more enjoyable whenever like their survival isn't done because like, well, like, you know, with the the Friday the 13th movies, the the leads are always killed, like right there. If they survive, like they're the first to die in the next one.
0: I and, cannot tell you how much I hate that trend.
1: Yeah. And that's that's even done, unfortunately. Um with the uh, the lead character from Dream Warriors, who just shows up to get killed, and the the fourth one on Elm Street, and so for for these for these movies to like really care, I'm like, well, what would happen to these people? Where would they be here? How would they be dealing with this? You know, um, it's so refreshing in this genre now.
0: So you, the the first film was obviously a par- not a parody, but like a, a satire and commentary on horror films, and this one. I like that it's, it's it's not so interested in the horror films this time it's much more interested in the co- the whole concept of sequels uh, but how, how well do you think it it um kind of explores the, the notion of sequels and does it bec- does it become the cliche sequel or do you think it is able to you know stay fresh throughout the the, the whole way
1: um it's true because I they pay lip service is probably too harsh they like they definitely bring up the concept of sequels and rules and stuff but that feels way less present for me this time around like the first one felt very intentional in its commentary um and this one doesn't lose it it doesn't forget it but i feel like this one acts a lot more as a straightforward like like entry in the in the slasher genre Um, you know you've got scenes where where randy and dewey are like sitting down and talking about suspect you know who could it be now that we're in a sequel you know the rules are different the
0: film school for film classes and and the the whole the whole finale is pretty much about sequels
1: yeah but the thing is i feel like even in the finale if you reduce that it's still like it still holds up it still makes sense i don't i don't really feel as if like that's the point of the finale or or it, or that it's even like super embedded in what's going on like there's definitely you've got uh with the i'm forgetting a timothy Olyphant's character's name but with mickey the, do it mickey mickey yeah with the character of mickey um you definitely have that desire to like ride on to the fame continue it you know like like live out the sequel but you know i mean. Both he and the like the idea literally get shot down um, <laughs> and it kind of returns back to the more classical reveal of who it is this and that like with the reveal and with the way it all plays out, it doesn't feel like ha ah, we do we're doing this as a as another piece of commentary. It feels much more like we're doing this because this is kind of how the series is gonna work And in a weird way, I don't even like mind that. Like whenever Mickey gets up and you know for that last kill like that happens in all of them and I would <laughs> kind of be annoyed if it didn't. It's exactly how I felt like with the Rocky movies like they all end and regardless of who wins everybody just rushes the ring and the same track plays and if that's ever gone I get upset.
0: I, I do like that they do it always do it a little differently here.
1: Yeah. they having a having mickey be the one to come back from behind like i i definitely like that
0: <laughs> they're just shooting her in the head like, just in the she's definitely not coming back
1: See, so, yeah but uh, you know i say all of that not even really as uh as anything negative because i I think the movie itself isn't trying to be quite as much of a of a commentary on the genre this time around there's it's definitely present like i said it's not that it abandons its, its roots at all um but it feels like it functions on its own and i don't even and again to clarify that i'm not using that as a way to say the first one doesn't function on its own it's just yeah i, I don't feel the concept of commentary and satire quite as present in this one as the first one
0: uh-huh yeah, it, it, it's really like the first one it's really focused on you know taking these characters on a journey especially sydney who i think once again has a really uh, I don't know, maybe even a much darker journey in this film. There's a whole sequence where she's kind of uh, you know, the theater teacher uh, compares her to Cassandra, which I'm not at all familiar with the myth, but according to his interpretation, he's very much about a character who who like sees sees a truth or a, a coming doom and can only watch and is, a, is like a helpless like, I'm not necessarily a helpless victim, but a helpless witness to like the horrors that are coming and while she doesn't I, I wouldn't say she entirely loses agency she's she's only a victim she really she also is very much kind of trapped in this cycle and a lot of crap just happens to her. i think like one of the darkest moments in this film is when uh at the climax when you know her boyfriend strung up yes and uh, Mickey's like, you can drop a facade, partner. We've got her. And, like he's like, he just turns it around and makes her doubt. You know that maybe her loyal boyfriend is actually the killer. And then the moment that she starts doubting him, he shoots and kills him. Yeah, that might be the darkest thing to happen in
1: this entire series. Yeah, I just I put in my notes like this scene is just cruel. <laughs> it's just, it's so, and. Uh, not even in a bad way. Like, it makes for a compelling watch. But it just... It's so mean to her sometimes. Um, because, like, you've got that... You've got that idea that, you know, she could be... And one of the things... Uh, and I know that we agree on this. One of the things that they could have done is just, like, gone the uh, the Halloween remake uh, this year's... Or last year's Halloween remake? Yeah. was 2018, yeah. Uh, and just, like, completely... Gone from the world, absent completely, all in up by yourself. Um, but they didn't, you know, she's a character who's trying to get back to her life. She's trying to not live as a victim. And
0: I, I love where she is at the opening of this film. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, she she just looks at the numbers like, oh, this is just Greg so-and-so, number, blah, blah, blah. Like, <laughs> that scene is, like, I really like that as an introduction, like back into where she's at. Um, but it's like... You know, she's living at she's living like this and then people start to die and she's like, well, I guess I just need to be a recluse. I need to keep people at, at arm's length. And you've got these other characters like, no, you you can't like with with Derek, her boyfriend, who I really like as a character. Um, and, yet, you know, as the audience, when he's saying like, no, you can't do this, you cannot let them win like this. You have to like there are people who care and love you and want to help you. She, because of that, you know, she with the the singing scene, which I really, really love that scene.
0: It's so bad, but so so cute.
1: Yeah, it's that's the thing. Like, it's it's cheesy and ridiculous, but I think in in ways that completely work. But like, you know, and then she hugs him because of, Like, it's it's like this r- reuniting with him. And one of the, like the most depressing things about it all is, you know, what she says to him is, you know if you keep, like, if you're close to me, you you are in danger. And th- there's definitely that suspicion of last time it was my boyfriend. So there is that there. But I still think either way, like, she genuinely does have two reasons to keep him away. Like, maybe she can't trust him. And if she can, then he still doesn't need to be around. And that is, like, that's completely true because he gives her the necklace, which... It, like which is what results in him being tied up and gets him killed. So literally, the statement of love, the statement of "I don't care," here's this physical representation of why I love you. That act is what gets him killed.
0: But she also leaves him before the finale. I, I'm I, I'm wondering, like every person who gets killed in this film, or at least of, of the you know the main characters is kind of like a result of losing sight of their loved ones. And I'm I'm not sure if that's just horror, you know, you have to separate them and then you kill them kill them off one by one. Or if it's actually like a theme. Um like just the way uh you know they lose they lose sight of Randy. They go off trying to find the killer and they're like, where's Randy? And he's gone. Or when uh when uh Doobie and uh, Gail are in the uh, the vi- like the video the video center in the college, and Dewey runs off after her, and that's how he gets stabbed. And uh and Sydney leaves Derek, and then he he that's what causes him to get caught and killed, or or simple things like a uh, like Sydney going back to check and see if he's still dead, and she gets separated, and then Hallie gets killed. Like that could just be this is horror, and you have to have the person by themselves so you can kill them. But I'm 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 wondering if it's like her, is it her? Constantly forcing in, in you know, self enforced isolation is, is what is allowing this evil to kind of have power over her and the one she loves.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like, with or I think, with the case of like what happens with Dewey and with Randy and everything, that feels more of just like typical function, like just the genre functioning as it does, because like they all three kind of are together until Randy just kind of walks off but yeah it, it definitely there seems to be a, an idea of like i don't know if it's holding on to the past like being defined by that where she has to go back she has to see who this is and um you know face this at the cost of of other people but
0: um yeah i don't know and the, the, the going back to the cassandra thing the whole thing uh, is she cursed and i i love how he goes this whole monologue it's like you're good I'm desperate. <laughs> we don't have an understudy. Like, yeah, the, was it, or was this all line. just you know, uh, you know, uh, drama teacher BS? Desperately trying to keep his star. Was it? Was it? Maybe
1: not. Who knows? I do want to talk about um, Sydney's relationship with Derek. That was something that I really, I think, meant very little to me the first viewing, and uh, it is really what resonates the most with me this time. It just. Really? Yeah. Just the, the idea of her not like trying to not allow her past to define her anymore. Um, you know, she's, she's not afraid, you know, you could have started this where, you know, that idea that she had before of like not wanting to be intimate with anybody. Well, you know, that got reinforced now. And so now, uh, I'm not going to let that happen, but she doesn't. And so she gets on, you know, she finds somebody she likes and then just the bringing up like paranoia and suspicion back and her having to wrestle with, you know, is this, is this me being naive? You know, have I really learned a lesson? Um, is the writing on the wall? Is this guy clearly, you know, the next Billy Loomis or am I allowing myself to just be paranoid? Um, am I like not allowing myself to move on and to live this new life? And so there's all of this inner turmoil going on. And what I find just like so tragic and sad about it is, you know, come to find out Derek really is just a good guy who genuinely cares about her. And so he's just, he is this victim caught up in all of this, where he's trying to, he's doing all of the right things, um, and yet, because of the just the complex nature of the situation, the understand like the understandable paranoia. Uh, cause her previous boyfriend also reassured her number of times. You know, it's not me. I would never do this to you. And so, I I think because I like Sydney as a character so much, and and as we already said, like that scene just feels like the darkest the series ever gets. Um, it's probably like they're they're connection together and what happens and the way it ends is just like the most Emotionally affecting I think the series is for me just because mm-hmm. of how much like just how much the movie beats her up and like uh, Is constantly pulling her in different directions where there really isn't any easy answer and any direction you go is probably going to result in the death of somebody like pushing them away keeping them close something bad is going to happen and yeah just the fact that he plays it up like such a well not that he plays it up the fact that he is such a good guy because like i said i I do really like that scene in the cafeteria i also i also like the way it shot just pulling the camera back almost like it was a musical um but it's just <laughs> it was really fun and it's very obvious that that he cares that there's genuine concern <laughs> and to just kill him for his concern is just so sad yeah
0: and uh, neve Campbell is really good here. Um, you know, there's none of the kind of naivete and um, you know, high school girl sweetness that she had in the first film. It's very there, there's like like she starts off the film very, you know, pretty strong. She's you know really trying hard and that as the things happen is just like this gigantic weight is just crushing her for the entirety of the film and like she's at, at at like this stage of fragility for the whole film and it's, it's I think she plays it really well without without ever coming across as weak. But she still he still allows the, the the darkness to really get there.
1: Yeah. what's crazy is like the they were shot so close to each other, but she feels so much older here. Like yeah. she genuinely feels like a naive like high schooler in the original and here it she feels like somebody with the past somebody who's experienced trauma and has grown from it and is like she feels very very strong like with experience and wisdom and uh and like almost a hardened nature
0: i love the the, the first time the fr- the first time she you know hears ghostface on the, uh, the phone like she doesn't she doesn't even play her like you know why don't you show you your face you effing coward just like she just goes on the attack
1: yeah yeah that that's just what really took me off guard whenever I, you know, was looking into the production and stuff, because I, I had no idea that they were like back to back releases, just because of how well they were able to like portray um, distance and time and and character growth. That almost it almost feels physical. Like it just l- feels like I'm looking at somebody who's just genuinely grown years. You know, there's years of time between the last one.
0: Yeah. Um. One question. The, uh, on this second viewing, uh, Buffy or Sarah Michelle Geller's death almost felt like it was a little out of place. Like I I, I, I like this film a lot, but I feel like the structuring is a little odd. I'm not sure if that's simply an artifact of having to restructure the entire film and you know change up you know character motivations and who characters are. But like th- that that sequence is clearly trying to replicate the Drew Barrymore sequence of the first film. Which is kind of odd because that's what the opening sequence with a uh, Jada Pinkett and Omar Epps is doing. Um, it it is—it's kind of—it it felt a little strange this time because, like, and also th- her sequence, her scene is really short, like compared to the first, compared to like the Drew Barrymore sequence it's obviously replicating, and like there's so much less stalking and chasing. Like she's killed off pretty quickly, and I, I'm almost wondering like if if that entire sequence was only there because. Sarah Michelle Gellar wanted to be in their movie. To me, it it's the reminder that Ghostface is back, and he's was kind of accomplished by you know the the, the opening sequence. And she's not, and and uh, Buffy isn't exactly um, connected to any of our main characters. She's just kind of it was it just struck me as a little odd this time, and especially since that sequence feels so rushed and kind of over so fast. And then the way that sequence immediately leads into Ghostface attacking Sydney, and like I almost wish, like I almost wonder if it would have been like it would have flowed better if if we just maybe combined those two attacks, you know, killing uh, Buffy and then combining the attack on Sydney and you know wounding Derek and and kind of jumpstarting the plot because it feels like we have the opening, then we kind of like we have the opening sequence and then we kind of go back into normal life and have just like. Yeah, you know, that 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 twenty twenty you know twenty minutes of just setting up characters, and then we have to jumpstart the plot again with her.
1: So my only real criticism is is her lack of involvement with the rest of like the cast and the story. But I actually like that it's used to jumpstart the plot again. Like, you know, you have that initial scene, the murder at the new stab one, and uh, at the at the stab film, and I think, how needing that second kill as a true announcement kind of reinforces the the paranoia of the film because I think what I like about the having like 20 minutes of just establishing characters and where they're at after the kill is it kind of, you know, I, I don't think that Sydney sees that and immediately thinks like, well, you know, it's back. Here we go again, like time to be up on the guard. And, you know, so Dewey comes back and he's like, hey, I just want to be around. I want to watch you in case anything happens. And she's like, well, I can't just, you know, not live my life. And then, there's this idea of, if I react to this, you know, am I being paranoid? It's happened, but is it related to me? And so mm-hmm. the the kill after is, is like the the true like unmistakable announcement. Um, I I think it's going. The second kill is what's going to have her, like, reinforce her paranoia going forward. It's like, you know, I thought it wasn't Beck. I thought it wasn't me.
0: But that's accomplished by having him immediately attack her after killing Buffy.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing. The immediate attack is one of the things that almost feels weird to me. Because you can almost... Like, the attack on her in the first one makes sense. Because I I don't know if I... I don't think... That they would have actually, like, killed her. I think one of the points of that first attack on on Sydney in the the original is so that you could see, or is so that you could establish, you know, Billy as potentially somebody involved, um, and then clear his name. Yeah, and then clear his name, bring it, make you suspect him, and then, you know, quote unquote, prove his innocence. Uh, but I don't think that that's like nothing like that is being accomplished here and so well we we, we suspect uh derek
0: for a bit like they kind of like they give me the the pity me cut on the arm that misses every uh final yeah vinyl artery
1: <laughs> um but the thing so like that makes sense and as like external to the film to us as audience it makes sense for what it accomplishes for us but the thing is the first one accomplishes that while also working in the context of the film of like like trying to trying to have her suspect him so he can clear his name like bring himself up as a potential um killer and then like prove his innocence in front of her like it makes sense in the context of the original story but this one like while it makes sense for what it does for the audience it doesn't exactly make sense within the context of the story
0: what if it was a uh say like laurie metcalf just jumping the gun because she doesn't care about uh mickey's Movie like she's geared by sequel. She's just here to kill to kill Sydney, he, and he's the he's kind of the distraction
1: and the, and the the bait for the cops. Yeah. So, the thing is, I almost if that is the case, and I don't even know if if I would say it's definitely not. But if if it is, I wish it was explored more because one of the one of the issues that I do kind of have after the reveal is because of just her so explicitly stating like I don't care about any of this this is ridiculous I'm here for revenge blah 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 that she would go along with the theatrics as long as she did just doesn't well, she make a lot of sense in get,
0: retrospect she had to get uh Sydney alone somehow but also also she had to have, have she had to have the an, another killer out there actually you know doing all the murders so that like she could commit her own murder Inside of the, it's like a, it's like the opening of Jack Reacher. You, know? you gotta you gotta kill a bunch of people so you can kill the one person
1: and not make it suspicious. Yeah, and this is like that movie made that point clear. And I don't know if this one does. Like it makes sense. Like the logic of it all is sound. It's just I feel like it's well, she's a little crick, right? Yeah, but even so, I don't know. It's just with the with the kill at the stab film. And I guess you could justify that by like, you know, they're making a movie that's, you know, commercializing, you know, the death of her son.
0: Well, But I even think that, that was definitely Mickey. Well, and that the, was just I think that was him, you know, that was the the grand opening to his sequel.
1: And that's that's the thing. So like with with him doing that and then the uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar's dying and then like the video like killing Randy and the videotape, you know, pulling them in, it that all felt very it feels like really long running theatrics and it's just i don't buy that she's along for the ride that long unless it was a distraction in which case i just i kind of wish that that was something that the movie talked about a little longer
0: but going back to buffy well i think her name is Cece, but i'm calling her buffy um what if like she is the traditional victim in any you know sorority house massacre slumber party massacre you know there's a billion of those movies what if like like Mickey doesn't care about Sydney, so he's kind of like making his own traditional horror sequel, and uh, Mrs. Loomis is kind of there trying to guide him into you know, taking out the people that killed her son and defamed, and defamed her son, while he's also just kind of lashing out randomly. I, don't know. That's, like it, it, I I agree that I wish it was confirmed a little more, but it is kind of fun to think about.
1: this like that dynamic actually sounds like super interesting. The idea of the one person with the vendetta with an actual target with this and that and someone else that like they genuinely need who, but who's kind of in it for different reasons. That's a really cool dynamic. And I guess just by, by nature of what these movies are and where the reveals come from you, unless you just want to go into like really prolonged flashbacks or like you know, to have to like monologue, villain, villainously oh, there's monologue. there's
0: a lot of monologues already.
1: <laughs> yeah, like they're already pretty packed. So I don't even know really how you do it. It's just, yeah, th- that idea makes sense in theory and maybe it's present enough, but it's still, I don't know. I don't know what sounds more convincing that he's just wanting to kill off a sorority g- girl because it's what you do or it's kind of an arbitrary death because we need to announce that he's back and it and it actually does in the sake of the genre. like it makes sense, which I guess is an extension of of his involvement. So maybe that is what it is.
0: um, but going back, going back to that opening sequence, I think it's really fantastic. And I, i'm I'm kind of wondering, is this Wes Craven telling us what he thinks about slashers and what he thinks about like the gore hounds who like them? i
1: I did kind of think about that the first or uh, for the first time uh watching it for the podcast
0: isn't like y'all are all a bunch of
1: psychopaths like it's it's definitely not as like brutal and indicting as something like funny games is but it does like it feels like very intentional like contrasting of like these the also i also wonder if he's ever actually gone to a premiere or if he like he Definitely, just thinks we're all a bunch of psychopaths, like standing up in costume constantly, like it.
0: Maybe he went to like a screening of the room once or something.
1: Yeah, maybe, but like even in the background, they're like everybody's like in their seats, constantly making stabbing motions at like any given moment, th- just throwing buckets of popcorn across the room. But but I get what you're saying though, and that was like it does feel like there is something there by having like all of these people like just like begging for blood ready for the kill
0: and you're commenting on the nudity and all that stuff yeah just
1: the like just reveling in the exploitation of it all um only to be confronted by the reality of it like and i think it is poetic that she's standing in front of the screen you know she is a part of what they're there watching now you know she's living it out in front of the projector so it feels too intentionally crafted and staged for it to not be saying anything
0: and so over the top yeah
1: i i do love the way it's shot though just like how disorienting it feels that you know as she climbs up there
0: oh the flashing lights all the ghost face around yeah. her and-
1: yeah and just him sitting down with the mask was just like really creepy and unnerving in the moment yeah
0: and i don't know i have a phobia about getting stabbed in the face <laughs> that oh yeah, my, that's I'm a good getting, phobia to have uh, it's so it's so disturbing yeah and then that that ignites the whole discussion of sequels and uh the effects of violence on film on on, on culture and you get the kind of the, the conversation between all the um and the, 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 aside from nobody talking about Ingmar Bergman, or whatever, and only talking about popular filmmakers. Like, that does sound like a bunch of, you know, pretentious first year film students. Yeah. It is kind of funny. And one thing I really kind of, I really loved and I noticed this time was that it's Mickey who is arguing, who is making the argument that film violence affects real life and that sequels can be better than the original. (laughs) Both of which kind of play into his motivations. Like, you actually realize. He's arguing that because he has to believe that because he's making a sequel. And his entire defense is the film's made me do it.
1: Yeah. And again, like, you know, we brought this up in the first one. Uh, and yet this continues to be relevant with, with Joker being out now, which is, like, he's already crazy. The movie didn't make him be crazy. But now we've given him an excuse to rely on is, like, society and cinema and all of this. It's It's really to blame.
0: And why does Randy have to be the douchebag uh pretentious film snob? <laughs> <laughs> like the like, kind of running back and forth, um, where, you know, he's like trying to bring new seals, you know. Empire Strikes Back. Part of a trilogy, not a sequel, completely planned, which is total BS.
1: <laughs> it's completely wrong. It's a sequel. Those what good sequels are is continuations.
0: No, but but even it wasn't even planned. Like Splinter of Minds I was playing.
1: Oh, well yeah. Um,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he was like I like those little furry things, the Ewoks. They blow. <laughs> <laughs> Timothy Olyphant is great, and I think another issue with this show is that he completely disappears for the entirety of the second act. Like the second half of the film, he is gone. He isn't like he doesn't even. I don't. Know if, I don't even know if he has a single scene. Maybe there's like one. And I think that kind of hurts the actual reveal. But that said, like I love Timothy Elephant, but the dude has like he's when he wants to be crazy. He is so good at it.
1: Yeah. He's, he's like, he's almost got like borderline Jack Nicholson eyebrows when he wants to. Like he could just turn on the the crazy look on a fly because he is like very like, like conventionally handsome. He seems like the typical college kind of, not college bro, but you know, just the, a regular guy that you'd cast in these movies. And then whenever it's time for the reveal, he's able to go full on crazy. And you look and it are like, Oh yeah. Like how was I not seeing this before? Like he, he's having so he much looks fun. like he's messed up.
0: It's just the way he plays. Like since, you know, since Derek here disappeared on my ass, I've been on my own. all I think night is he's like, <clears throat> he just plays it off. So, so nonchalantly. And
1: <laughs> yeah. And whenever she, uh, whenever Sydney steps away, and we cut back to him, and he, his eyes are just going back and forth between Derek and Sydney. He's got the most, like, smug look of satisfaction. Like, he knows it worked, and it's just, oh, it's so hard. With a line, you know, you, after he shoots it, uh, you should really work on your trust, trust
0: issues, Sid. This is the type of boy you'd, you'd love to take home to mom, if you had a mom. <laughs> so evil. And it was like you know, Billy was a sick bleep who wanted to get away with, get away with it. I'm a sick bleep who wants to get caught. See, I've got the whole de- defense planned out. I'm gonna blame the movies. This is just a prelude to the trial. Because face it, these days it's all about the trial. Which <laughs> I love the callback to to uh, Stu's line. You know, these days, you've gotta have a sequel. Yeah. And just <laughs> I love it. just going on Like it's totally gonna work. Hell, the Christian Coalition will pay my legal fees.
1: <laughs> I'm an innocent victim.
0: <laughs> and like yeah, they're really going hard on the whole. Um, you know, whether or not violence affects movies or
1: that's the thing. That idea seemed to be more present than the yeah. That idea seemed to be more present than the idea of sequels. Almost is like what the effect of like violent cinema has on on us. Yeah,
0: I, I think if, just to bring up a criticism, I I do feel like the second act of this film kind of loses a bit of steam. Um, and it's not a huge. It's not like I'm ever really bored but i feel like there is a little bit of a lack of like direction sometimes in the second act just kind of like we're we're just kind of going from scene to scene like, there's a lot of great character in what's happening there's you know there's great scary sequences but i feel like there's this this was probably a result of having to rework the entire film while shooting but i, I just feel like it's it's not as like sharp and kind of propulsive as the first film was there's a there's just kind of an element of uh, maybe a little bit of treading water in the middle, like not a huge deal, but I think it's one thing that, that kind of brings this down a little bit. Like the, the, I feel like the climax, you know, picks up and is, is, is fantastic, but I feel like it, it, there's a bit where it just kind of doesn't, know, doesn't entirely seem to know where it's going.
1: So my, I'm actually mostly okay with the second act. My own, like my biggest criticism is we'll get it. Like it's involved in the climax, even though I really enjoy it. The, i'll just say now like, again we'll talk about it whenever we get there but i'm not a huge fan of the like the billy loomis's mother reveal oh really um I love yeah it. uh but I, what so i understand what you're saying with the the second act part of what i like about it is just because uh or is, is the idea of of this paranoia Where like i mean paranoia was definitely a huge factor in the original and it was very much like this kind of laser focused movie but here there's this constant question of what do we do? Like, do we keep going? Do I stop? You know, like you've got Dewey, who's not even really a police officer, but he's, he's there to like, to help out. You know, like, I guess we'll we'll look into this. We don't really have a whole lot to go on. Everybody just, they're really, you really don't know what to do. And I think part of that definitely is, um, like there's definitely valid criticism there. And I think it's definitely a result of having to rewrite the script. Uh, but part of it i think actually works for the mood of just this idea of what do we do you know do i do i lay back and like let do people do? handle this what would do we do is what we need to ask uh no like i i do for a, as much as i do get it there is something that i like about like okay i'm at the library and i'm getting these threats we're just out on campus something like how do I keep living? Should I keep moving on? Have I made the right decision in like trying to live a normal life? And just you, that whole middle section does kind of feel like it's characters are kind of just questioning. Well, what now? You know, what how do we handle this? Um, like I said, it's not it's not completely perfect, and I and I think that is obviously a result of everything that happens. But I think it's able to fold that into the the narrative in a way that kind of makes sense for where the characters are at
0: and uh, let's move to Randy uh well first just let's just say it Randy is the best um and I, I love that he's like he's actually kind of cool now um like I don't know if he was cool in 1997 but the, the guy he is in this movie would actually would, would probably be cool today and I, I love that they carry the, the the thread over of him still having a massive crush on Cindy yeah. Like after when she comes to him and like they're talking and then uh, Derek kind of butts in and he's just like the look of total exasperation on his face in the background, <laughs> or he's just kind of like a third wheel as they're kissing. He's like, "Oh my gosh, get!" Her. <laughs> or like when he uh, he brings uh, Sydney the drinks at the party and the two girls, t- the other two sorority girls take them, or either that or he brought the drinks to distract them, in which case it also worked. Um, you know, to, to get free Sydney for, you know, from their uh, vapid uh company yeah <laughs> after like him and uh mickey are watching like they watch the uh the stab pro- the stab uh promo They're like i'll wait for the video
1: <laughs> yeah, i love that line just the transition back into the conversation is so good also like just real quick i love just recreating that scene just as a as a straight B movie, because you had that like that whole scene with with him, you know, kind of like hitting us like idiot. And here you just got Luke Wilson, just like completely overacting, You'd be like, oh, stupid. It's a definitely a fun moment.
0: Yeah, um, and just I love it, like laying out the rules of the sequel. Rule number one: bigger body count. Two: more elaborate kills. <laughs> when he's going through the suspects, it's kind of hilarious, you know, you yeah. know. But he wants to break new ground, so forget the boyfriend; he's old news. So who we got? If Mickey. The you're freaky suspect. Tarantino film student. But if he's a suspect, so am I, so let's move on. <laughs> well, maybe let's not move on. Well, if I'm a suspect, you're a suspect. Good point. That's your point. Let's move on. <laughs> Speaking of the roommate, I just watched I Know What You Did Last Summer, and Jennifer Love Hewitt's character has pretty much like the exact same black, incredibly chipper roommate who's constantly uh trying to get her uh you know to, to open, you know to open up and get out into the world after like a haunting uh, tragedy so apparently williamson wasn't entirely original in his characters <laughs> but she doesn't die in that one <laughs> i just the not lie you know please this is me randy the unrequited love slave of sydney prescott believe me i know all about obsession
1: <laughs> so what what are your thoughts about him actually dying
0: <sighs> i'm gonna spoil the movie serenity uh so if you, if you haven't seen that just skip for about Ten seconds. Or actually, no, I'm not. Okay, Uh, in the film *Serenity*, a major, one of the beloved characters from the TV show, dies at the beginning of the third act. And what it does for that film is it makes you believe something that almost no action films ever do: that not not only can anyone die, but that all of them may well die in that finale. It just gets really grim, and there, that film has a sense of stakes. And this is the uh, the Firefly Serenity, not the Matthew McConaughey and, and Hathaway movie from last year. Uh, it has a sense of stakes and weight to that finale that I've that I've so rarely felt in action blockbusters. And the pr- the price was you just had to randomly kill off a beloved character. And what I think Randy's death does for this film is it maintains that beautiful sense of tension and scariness that the first film had
1: yeah because in the first one you didn't know who you're going to end up with as your core characters like for the series yeah uh because rose mcgowan very much could have been that mm-hmm. until she died and so could have Billy too <laughs> yeah
0: uh, but i think that is undermined in all future sequels by the choice to keep uh dewey alive but I I love Dewey, so I can't complain too much. But I don't I don't think that I don't think the next two sequels have the same sense of danger that the first two films have, and I think that's due to the choice to kill just randomly kill off Randy. That said, I hate it with everything, in me. <laughs> and I want my precious Randy back. Um, so yeah, I'm at least glad he got to be a total badass in the 30 seconds leading up to his death. Just him going off of this like expletive laden rant against <laughs> Billy, he's just going on and on. He's like, and he's really just f you, and then he's dead. But he was he was awesome in that moment.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's where I'm at. It, there is, I do think there's a very clear line drawn between one and two and three and four uh, for various reasons. But one of the reasons I do is like one and two feel dangerous. There's a threat that hangs over the movie and three and four very much feel like comfort food as a movie. It's like
0: they're only dangerous for the new guys.
1: Yeah. And that's not even really dangerous. Cause they, we never really end up falling in love with a lot of the new characters. Like there's some really good characters in some of them or in in, uh, in three and four, but it's like, we're here to watch our favorites, you know, like, kick butt to the very end and you know we'll we'll get a couple of good meaningless deaths on the way but killing randy definitely justifies the feeling of of paranoia and i think Derek is a really good character And i think killing him in the finale even though he is new here coming on the heels of randy's death this one this movie feels like it has a lot of teeth to it
0: and the but in the same virtue fake killing both gail and and Dewey kind of i think it works in this film but it does undermine that sense of the sequels where you're like they're not gonna kill them
1: yeah um that's that so it's is like i don't understand why they they did the same thing with dewey in one and two <laughs> like just let's stab him let's stab him once in the first one make you think he's dead and now that he's walking around with a lint, let's stab him like three times but he's still okay and speaking of dewey
0: it's so he's it's so sad see just how broken he is. Like I'm almost convinced, like he was like really sick on that first day of filming, because he's like he's like super thin. He's like really pale. There's like a sheen of sweat over him. Like this dude looks so broken. It's so sad. You know, he lost his sister. He's got this like serious disability, or whatever. Like, cut, like severed a nerve or whatever. Like he like it's it's really rough.
1: Yeah, they I like that. He's he maintains his personality, but you know they they almost can't just turn him into that complete goofball because he's you have to have him around around like as a reminder, and it's got to be kind of sad.
0: He kind of reverts back to that as he gets you know as him and Gail kind of reconnect, but, he, but he's like much much wiser and sadder in the first half. Um, and I thought that he was the one who was like like truly. Everyone else was just kind of annoyed about by, by Gail, but like oh, it's just Gail being Gail. But like, like he would actually as the one who actually connected with her is like actually genuinely hurt. And I love that that, that Gail didn't entirely revert back to the, her evil, you know, uh, evil tabloid reporter. Like she, she she, did because she had this kind of a lifetime and she she, she got um, she got a uh, what's his name? She got caught out of jail and all that. <laughs> but I love that you know, it doesn't take nearly as long for that stuff to start breaking down again and the kind of the ending where you know, the cameraman comes back and like hey you got your scoop let's do it and she chooses instead to you know, get in the ambulance with uh yeah. with Dewey again it's really sweet and um and i i like that she is genu- she is like genuinely hurt by just just how angry Dewey is with her she she could she could care less if everyone else hates her but it it hurts her that he would think less of her despite the fact that she she, <laughs> she was she was horrible to him
1: yeah, I do like that line when you know where she walks. I was like, "He's a good guy, unlike the rest of us." Like, yeah, this I like that she still holds him in the in that kind of regard.
0: She just get, get a couple like really, uh, awesome quotes. You know, like, begin quote: "Your flattering remarks are both desperate and obvious." End quote. <laughs> I, I love the wrinkle of bringing in Cotton, and Liam Shriver is so freaking good. And, like, he's like he has kind of a point. Like he's. He, he was obviously very wronged in the first film. He went to a prison for a year for a crime he didn't commit. But he's also so sleazy and opportunistic and so obviously only here just to get what you know squeeze whatever he can out of it. And like just the moment where he's on camera, he's like kind of grinning and kind of bouncing back and forth, constantly like looking at the camera. Like oh, he's so sleazy and it's so good.
1: Yeah, I. That's that's a decision that I really like about this movie is, like, it could have easily have just turned like tried to either have him be the killer or just like the like the ultimate good guy be like, hey, you wronged me, and it's fine. Like, I don't, there's there's different ways that they could have gone that would have felt like okay, yeah. I mean, I guess that makes sense. That's kind of what you do, but for to him, like, for to bring him back as like this fame hungry guy and also
0: he's po- kind of possibly a psychopathic murderer. We don't know.
1: Yeah. Like kind of hint that, Hey, maybe there is something messed up with this guy, but like it's acknowledging that this is also the guy who was like sleeping with the married woman and stuff. Like it, it didn't try to make him out to be someone that you, you wouldn't, th- you wouldn't have thought that he would have been in the first one. I feel like it's still kind of able to maintain um, who you might think he is just based on what we know like leaving like just leaving drunk after sleeping with a married woman is like all the real tangible information we have on him in the first one and so to just kind of have him as like this opportunist makes sense and, you know and, like this yeah. self-serving character
0: and he's so entitled like obviously mean, like he has a legitimate grievance against Sydney, but he's like so entitled <laughs> Everyone thinks I'm a psycho killer. And all I'm asking for is a little effing Diane Sawyer interview. He's like coming down the stairs like on top of her. He's so creepy. Can I remind yeah. everyone that I'm an innocent man? Do you watch TV? Current edition? It was a very insightful program.
1: <laughs> innocent. Ever heard of it? It's a big one.
0: And the fin- and the way they use him in the finale I think is absolutely brilliant. Where he comes in. you know, He's not the killer. But he's not a good guy either. <laughs>
1: and like that that kind of like it's it's the like it's the least like clearly defined thing like he's he's ultimately what's gonna split it because you, at that point you know we've revealed our killers we obviously know who our good guys are we know like all these lines are drawn and just to end, like enter a third party that's kind of yeah. you know you don't really know where it's gonna go
0: total wild card yeah and that's, that's <laughs> I've had thing. Like, a very very bad day hi yeah. you're not Debbie Salt are you <laughs>
1: And so I think that's one way for, like, this This feels like the climax of the first one in the ways that it should, but it's still able to, like, his inclusion in it is what differentiates it to where it's like, it's not this, well, let's toy around with the villain and do this and that, and then we'll win. It's like, uh uh-oh, well, that's kind of the track we were on until this guy showed up, and now we've got to try to reason with him. (laughs) I love how...
0: Mrs. Lewis is like, if you really want the spotlight, just let me kill her. She she you to prison for a year. Personally, I think that's rather poetic. Like, she thinks she's so logical and that she can just think her way out of it. Uh, just a lie. To you, I bet you that Diane Sawyer interview is looking really good right now. Hmm? <laughs> Done. <laughs> I just like, he, he blackmailed her into getting the
1: Diane Sawyer interview yeah. just to save her he's life. A, it's, it's he's so a great. Ball. And I also, I love that little, it's like a small little moment whenever she's like, caught give me the gun and he just like holds it for a little bit it's like
0: oh 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 yeah right <laughs> like, he's like <laughs> oh gail pops back he's like what is anyone else down there
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a it's definitely a fun ending
0: it's, it's it's such a great ending for all the characters i think except Cindy who's screwed up for life yeah
1: now whenever they go to like just completely defensive recluse in the third one it makes sense you know obviously we'll talk to that when we, we'll talk about that when we get there but yeah, the these movies together really put her through the ring, uh, and we we kind of we talked about it a little bit, but I do want to talk about um, the film's use of of Dewey and Gale. I I like it a lot. It's like we one of the things we said in the first episode is it's it's kind of weird how the movie is able to make their relationship work, like with that scene where they're walking down. Like she is, she is an opportunist. She is all about like spinning any situation like these are murders going on and you know and it's there to help her book sales as she very clearly said um it she should be just completely obnoxious and the idea that somebody like somebody like dewey maybe in the first one it makes sense just because of how bumbly and goofy he is but like in this one I, it almost felt like if you're going to keep her the same character which they which they don't as as gets revealed but like just to try to get them back together should shouldn't work, maybe. Uh but it really does here. And I I love just how rocky they are at the beginning. You know, where he's like, How do you know that this isn't a facade that I put up and you know, he gets that whole thing, you know, like this I'm just using this to like catch people off guard. And she just kinda of stares at him and then let like lets out a little chuckle, but not like this condescending like chuckle, but she is kind of like not taking him seriously and the way that they begin, like they reintroduce these two characters in their dynamic together like this, where they end up at the end with like their real connection there in the, in the classroom. And then her getting into the ambulance, it all kind of flows really well. Like there's, there is something that makes sense to it. Um, their, their relational arc in it. I really like a lot. I think a lot of that is due to,
0: you know, Courtney Cox being able to just flawlessly modulate between you know, the
1: the cutthroat reporter, the this is the, the sincere person underneath. Yeah. And like she's I I didn't realize how much I really love her in the role. Like wh- when she does get, you know, fierce and she's you know, she has that line to to who it turns out to be Mrs. Uh, Loomis and it's like she's really good uh, when she goes on the attack. I think she has a lot of like really nice, quiet, dramatic moments. Uh, but she's also just really funny. Uh, and is also just a, a great line on the script whenever they're talking about Um, the pictures getting released and she's like, it was just my head. It was Jennifer Anderson's body, which is also obviously just a a really funny reference. Um, But yeah, she's just super entertaining.
0: Yeah. And they have such fantastic chemistry together. which was Part of that must've been real because they got married two years later. Well, there you go. And that, that scene, the sequence in the, uh, the library, the uh, the library or the video, the video lab or whatever is really well, like all of the sequences are really well done, but that one in particular, so the the camera comes on, like showing various killings and then ending on them. Ugh. Oh, and just going through in these the sound the soundproof room and uh, stabbing Dewey against the glass, just like vomiting blood all over it. That's it's rough, but just the the, the constant reversal, like where she, she stabs him and then he runs through the door, and she like goes and kicks over the, the, the shelf and just like they're constantly moving. And then there's a long take sequence where you have all the sound walls. Ugh. And she's like, go! It's like it's, it's like the T Rex sequence from uh, Jurassic Park, where like she's co- she's constantly moving the cameras, constantly moving, it, and we're, they're almost always in the same shot together, which is really cool. Yeah, and just the way they kind of move through the just again yeah, the Steadicam work all throughout this film is absolutely amazing.
1: And another thing that is a continuation from the first one a really good use of like geometry, like using the space to to really highlight the scene.
0: It's always using the location, each location to its fullest. And I think that that really comes to a head in the finale on the stage. I just like, it's, I think it's really you know, poetic. You know, we've had that moment. You've had all of this, you know, happening on stage. And then when Sydney when finally turns it around and like the, she's using the props and the special effects and, and just all the, all the levers to kind of torture uh, Mrs. Loomis. Um, and I, I love that she's, she really is able to get her licks in. Like, on both Mrs. Lewis and on Mickey. Yeah. She may not not be able to beat Mickey but She does. She may not be able to actually beat him. But she definitely, you know, gets her hits in. And it's it's just the constant reversals. The same thing with the first film. Just the constant building and reversals. And just the little bit of hope. And the hope dashed. And the dangers. the, The way it's all sequenced out. It's just... It's something that... Like, I think Wes Craven... Like, I think action directors could actually learn a lot from the way Wes Craven – because these are, these are pretty much action sequences. Like, sure, they're horror, but just the way they're built with the, the constant setups and payoffs and reversals, like, it's, it's, it's an action sequence. They're, they're, they're always really engaging. and they're fun to watch and they, they always keep you on edge and they're, they just, they're able to just tease out the tension and the fun, you know, far longer than most films could ever dream of
1: yeah and again like it's not to just completely reiterate ourselves from the last episode but it it works because you have to constantly add in wrinkles you can't let the scene feel like it you know you can't let fatigue sit in and so you shift the power dynamic you add the new like you don't get both reveals in at the very like at the exact same moment um you know this you start the scene off with the reveal then the death then the second reveal role reversal adding cotton there's constant additional layers being added that completely changed uh, like where everybody stands in relation to the other and uh and it's also just like just thematically on point. one of the things that i didn't think about until um until this watch was just the idea of you know you've got in the first one the line you're know, like movies don't make killers movies just make killers more creative and then here the idea of him trying to use movies as an excuse the the discussion of movies and and actual violence has always been framed as like this what is what is the effect it has on on like the people in wrong what does it have on the psychos and this and that and in her conversation with um with her drama teacher I should have written the line down but he's talking to her and know, he, like he's alluding to this idea of you know being a part and he admits it's only because there's no understanding and he's desperate but like one some of the reason he reasoning he gives her is like there's almost power in art like you can almost you can almost reverse the conversation to where like what we say in art could help the conversation you know we can't just we can't lose art to those who would hide behind it as a you know as a defense and so For her to literally be using the play and put it on the attack, like to turn the theatrics against the killers and use like actually use it against them, uh, was an idea that I really liked a lot of like, not, not losing the battle, like just this conversation surrounding art, not losing it to them, but using it, um, actually like in an active way it was mm-hmm. something that i thought was really cool
0: and the, the, just the setups and payoffs that happened in the finale the, the thing you mentioned like the the, we, the first time we see the play uh, the, the, the sequence with the guy stalking her like with, with all the people with the mask
1: that's my that might be my favorite sequence in the, in terms of like death or potential death that is
0: fantastic. yeah like they're all they all have masks and they all have knives and the ghost face just keeps flitting in and out of frame it's the art there is like destroying and crushing her. Then, and, and as you said, you know, in the finale, she kind of turns it on her on, turns it around. Which I think, you know, a nice setup and payoff. And it's just lit, things like, uh, you know, the way Mickey is defending the idea of art, influencing life and sequels being better than the original. You know, that kind of plays into his motivation. Um, uh, things like the, the, the Diane Sawyer <laughs> interview, plugging into a cool part. And it's just like, it's a little one that happens at the beginning of the finale. That I just find kind of funny where, um, when, uh, Cindy is describing her two uh, her two guardians, like you know, she tells about one they're like, okay, he's single, I think he's gay. And then in the end <laughs> towards the end, was like where a Hallie asks, you know, where are you taking these? He you know, if you ask, if we told you we have to kill you, and then the other like, pipes up, don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh just like it's it's just a really clever movie that's always like I think it it loses a bit in the second act, but when it's on point, it's all it's always it's really it's always working to you know to get, to give the just to go the extra mile to be entertaining. Uh, yeah. let's talk about Mrs. Loomis.
1: Um I love her. Why didn't you like her? Um in other words, why are you wrong, James? Well, I'll tell you why I'm right. Um it's on rewatches I don't feel like the reveal enriches anything. It feels it feels arbitrary and I I don't feel like like, you have to have it to where, like, when you rewatch them, like, oh, man, there are all these little clever things stating this and that. But, like, just to have her as what feels like just like this – not throwaway character, but just this character who's constantly around Gale. And I also – like, this kind of plays I, I into – I like
0: that she's, she's always actually in position to be the killer. Like, you, you don't – she she has a reason to be there. I mean, she's Debbie Salt. She has a great reporter name. And like she, she's kind of the, the Gale Weathers wannabe. But she's always like there's there's moments where she like beats Gail like to one of the kills like and you never suspect her but like she's always in position.
1: That gets into like a logistical problem. I have is like she's always out in the open. She's always with Gail. She's always around these scene like the scene of the crime and this and that. But she's only ever in a position that uh, that Sydney could notice her at the very like during the finale. Like she's just out out in daylight out. Discuss like speaking with almost all of our other main characters at any given point and at the very end It's like mrs. Loomis. It's like where how did you not see her at any of these other major moments where she's just like Constantly well, she's like, like she had
0: a lot of work done. It's called the makeover suite. You should try. sure it.
1: but she She saw like but the thing like whenever she first steps out like Sydney instantly is like, oh, it's mrs. Loomis well because she's actually
0: looking at her because She's pointing a gun at
1: her. I mean, it's it, I don't know. It just It does not It feels very, I don't know, like, not lazy or maybe a bit cheap of just like, because if if that being the only defense is like, well, you know, she, it's hard to notice, but like everybody else is, like, I think there are scenes where like, Sydney talks to Gail that Mrs. Loomis ends up showing up in. Like, they're talking and there's cameras around and she walks away and Loomis like, is like, you know, you could say like, oh, well, she was waiting for her to leave, but I don't know, it just feels way too... For somebody who's, like, taking the time to do all this and there's all of all of this setup and all of this planning, for her to just, like, be around everybody and conveniently miss the lead who could, I like, identify her, just, it feels, you know, like, not completely earned. And again, it's, like, the, the character that she puts on of just, like, this wannabe reporter, that... There, that nothing really changes with that character They're so like, well, I mean, I guess she's not she's not really a wannabe reporter. It turns out, but like, it doesn't add anything.
0: It gave her an excuse to be there.
1: I mean, sure, but like, even so, I she could have. There's no reason she couldn't have just been like renting in a like staying in a hotel room the whole time.
0: I don't know. I, for me, it works because like it, it kind of fit together the way she's kind of like been seamlessly woven throughout the film. But I think even. Even if, I, even if I didn't like the reveal, I still love uh, Laurie Metcalf's performance.
1: She is really good in it, yeah.
0: Like, she's just right. I love that she is so convinced that she's saying, you know, uh, two birds, one stone. The boy, poor boy is completely out of his mind. My motive isn't as 90s as Mickey. Mine is good old-fashioned revenge. You kill yeah. my son, now I kill you. And I can't think of anything more rational. <laughs> You're as crazy as your son. Is that a negative, disparaging remark about my son? No, Billy was a good boy. He did a bang up job, Mrs. Lewis. <laughs> and then the final line—you know, you know what makes me sick? Some sick to death people saying it's all the parents' fault. <laughs> she, she just writes. She's so freaking crazy. The bulgy eyes, and just the, the way she speaks, just like ever, like trying to keep it all down. just—I just, I just find it really funny. I just like real super intense, especially in that final sequence. And even more, even more, kind of visiting back to that the the theme that uh, what Craven is always playing on—the like sins of the past—you know, coming to haunt uh, haunt our characters.
1: Yeah. It, so I I have no real issues with the performance, even though like even in the finale though, I'm I'm still much more entertained by uh by Timothy Olyphant's performance. Um, yeah, it's I also it's just hard because of how similarly structured it is to the first one in terms of like. This is when this kill happens. This finale functions in this way. Like there's so many just easy ways to compare and contrast um, as well done as I think the finale is the idea of Loomis's of Billy's mother coming back, you know, it hadn't occurred to me. And I think that's both a pro and a con and like the pro is that it does catch you off guard, but the con is like, I just, I really don't care. <laughs> it, ge- it
0: gives the film a reason to be about Sydney.
1: Yeah, definitely. And that's the thing, like so I get it, it,
0: it keeps it keeps the, the the curse on our characters.
1: Yeah, so it definitely it, it functions well. It's just I don't know, because of her like the actual character of Billy Loomis's mother is absent from the film because I really don't think like that reveal changes anything. Like aside from like logistical stuff of like it's what she does to get there. Because she's so the the idea of the of the mother is just so absent from the film when it's revealed it's like, oh, okay and then you know it's I I really liked uh, Stu's like the reveal of Stu just like this there's one guy who cares and then you've got the other guy who's just he was there for the ride he's crazy (laughs) but I really liked the reveal of Billy which
0: Mickey is the Stew
1: here yeah and it's just I, I feel like the Billy to Mickey's Stew isn't as interesting as like the original Billy and so Stu is not quite as like this 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 stew mickey is not quite as interesting because the actual like thing going on isn't cuz the idea with billy in the original is like there are those like shared conversations about about like shared mommy issues where you like the idea of his mother leaving him is brought up a couple times and the like and, of course, everything, the, just the constant references to, to her mother. And so it doesn't feel – it feels like it comes – like it, it catches you off guard. It's a surprise. But then you're like, okay, yeah, I get it. And this one's like, oh, I mean, that's something they could do. And it works well. It, it functions. It, it does give the reason – the movie a reason to do this. But I'm just – I'm not as invested. And I just I, I still prefer the finale of the original.
0: I mean, I, I probably prefer it too, but I I love this sequence just, un, uh, you know, unreservedly. I, I, just, I love the that that she found a way to, to rent a serial killer online. Yeah. There are only about 97 active serial killers at the moment. So Mickey here is quite a find. I need a sponsor. College is expensive. I, I love that we get both. We get the crazy man you know, trying to make a sequel and then the whole blame the movies thing, and we also get just the good old fashioned revenge angle. And, and for me, for me, both work. It just, it just, it just it enrich, It's just an element that enriches the story more than anything else.
1: I almost just wish that maybe like I don't think you would have to like acknowledge that it's Billy's mom. I I think just any sort of like line acknowledging the mom would have worked because then you'd be like, oh wow, like they they spent these couple scenes like bringing up the fact that, like, you know, the mom was torn up about it. And it turns out that person that they're talking about has been the person present in the movie the whole time. Like, you just, again, it's like the, the entire idea of it just feels like it comes so far out of left field that maybe bringing it up, not in a way that makes it obvious, where, like, oh, well, they brought up the mom, and then they showed her, like, she's definitely a potential one now. But if you just kind of be like, yeah, Billy's mom was never even, ever like, able to get over it, Kind of almost as, as a
0: like Billy's mom left because Sydney's mom, you know, had an affair with Billy's dad. So like, you could bring her up in reference to Sydney's, you know, still still being haunted by her mother's death.
1: Yeah, and so I I, just, I feel like any way of, like to just fold that idea that Billy's still had a mom out there, like back into the conversation somehow would have made the reveal a bit like, oh, wow, I thought that was a throwaway thing, but turns out they were setting up a character who's been here the whole time and this and that. It just it feels a little bit too out of left field for me, I guess, is, is really what it is. Mm-hmm. I get that. Uh, the only other thing, and this isn't like, it doesn't have anything really to do with, with any characters or overarching thing, but it's just a sequence that I, I have like a love-hate relationship with, and that's the the scene of them being in the back of the car and the killer showing up. This another one where like, the logistics of it just feels so weird. Of like them being able to him being able to come up and just like, kill the two officers and like just go on this. I it's so brutal and so quick. It's it's brutal. I love the way it's shot. It's just like, just the car swerving through the streets and crashing, and it just the streets feel like a film set. I think is one of my complaints.
0: Mm, There's no cars and
1: yeah, it's just. It cause a lot of the times horror movies will find very contrived ways of getting characters into situations to where you can kill them without having to worry about att- attracting attention. But it's like even when it's contrived, at least they're doing their work to be like, okay, now we can kill them. Here's like, yeah, we're just out in the streets driving, like driving through multiple streets, crashing into stuff, and we're still the only people around. It, it felt very much like, yeah, there's a there's a crew behind the camera here. I the as morbid as it is, I love the death, like just the poles going through the face and having the bodies squirm. It's yeah. such a gross Like it's that reminder that, like this movie doesn't like as consistently go for like these just brutal kills, but it still earns its R rating. <laughs> like, but also there's something so personal about
0: the knife kills. I think in the way he shoots it, like he he doesn't like he's not like graphic about it, but there's just something so. This really, I don't know. Just, just I think more disturbing than just the the usual Freddy or Jason kills. And
1: so he's able to get those like personal, like up front, face to face knife kills, and then just throw a few pipes through a guy's head and have his brain come out the other. Is side. Is he dead? <laughs> I think so. Uh, I, the, the, but the
0: sequence where they gotta climb through the back and over and goes yeah is it, really tense and well done.
1: That, but that's another one where like I I love that scene more than hate it. But like he acknowledges the idea that hey it makes sense to take the mask off but then the reason to not is like well i accidentally honked the horn so i guess there's no way i could ever try this again
0: but it makes sense like oh my gosh i gotta get out of here kind of thing the shock to the system
1: sure but like as soon as they're outside there's no reason to not put your hand back in there and like like save yourself a third act you know Uh find out who it is call the cops
0: Th- there's, there's, I, there's some kind of mystique, though, about the... Like, while they're wearing the mask, there's something more. Yeah, I,
1: th- this thing, for sure. It's just that's why I think he should have crafted that scene in a way where that wasn't an option. Because when she's saying, like... which is like, no, in the movies, it's the stupid people who go back. I'm like, wait, hold on. No, I, I get what you're saying. And you think that it would be stupid to do this. But for me, it's like, it was stupid to, like, be out of the car a foot away from it. And, like, and not save yourself the trouble. And it is because, like, yeah, we, we're not ready for the reveal. The movie is not ready to to show its cards yet. And so, to me, it was it was on the movie to give me a more believable reason as to why we're not taking the mask off. Because, in reality, it's like, yeah, with people, you know, it's 97. People now have cell phones, you know, fairly consistently, uh, as is, Shown by them, like in that really funny scene of them going to everybody who happens to be on the phone, <laughs> um, but like just take the mask off and call the police, save yourself potential like deaths. Yeah. Um, but that's like that's why the scene. I, I'm torn. Not really torn on the scene. I know exactly what I love about it and the things that don't work. Uh, but it is something that kind of stands out to me. Yeah.
0: Um. Oh, last guy. <laughs> I do love uh, Gail's new cameraman.
1: Yeah. It was like
0: him. Black guys never survive of these situations. And the, the funny thing is that uh, when they were they, when they were filming, like they they genuinely did not know what they were going to do with the character. They thought they were probably going to kill him, and like the actor really did not want to die. He did, didn't want to be the black guy who died. So he kind of talking to Craven is like, well, why? why don't I, if like, if I was in this situation, I would just leave. Like leave. And Craven's like, well, leave. Like, How would you leave? He said, well, taxi. <laughs> so they literally had him, like just walking off to a taxi. <laughs> In the middle of the film, and then coming
1: back, and I want to shoot the news. I don't want to be the news.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I think we have kind of pretty well covered this film. Um, so, James, what do you give, What star rating do you give this film out of five? And uh, how do you rank it against the first one? Uh,
1: so, I I give it the the same score that I gave the first one. I give it four out of five. I uh, between like comparing them, there are things that I do actually prefer about this one. I think there. Really? Like what? Um, Sometimes it feels a bit more, even though like just the cinematography and like the composite, like that was something that I really did like about the first. But there are even moments in this one where I'm like, man, this just the production production value just feels so good. Um, And I like, like we get to start already enjoying the characters and just by nature of it being a sequel, um, they're able to do things that the first one really couldn't, which is like find really interesting and compelling ways of like figuring out how, how to continue these people. You know, like what do we do? What do we, what do we say Sydney is now? How did that affect like affect her? So just things that the first one couldn't do. And so it's nothing against it. It's just, I do like, getting back with these characters and seeing things about it. They don't have to, like, establish a connection between me, the audience, and them as characters anymore and just, like, mm-hmm. get right into the relationships of it. Um, yeah, I just – I think the filmmaking, despite the fact that it it's not in, – in terms of its script and pacing, it's not quite um, as, like, just on point as as the first one is – there are just... The, the direction in some scenes, I'm like, I feel like even Craven has kind of... Kind of grew as a director. The way he shoots things is... I liked a lot. Um, Something just struck me with what you said.
0: I'm um, Not entirely connected, but I think one of the reasons I don't feel this film has as much, like, tension in and, and the the, and the middle feels a little... Not nearly not as tight as the first film. I think the college setting and, and the fact that so much of it is, like, exterior daylight, whereas the first film had a lot of nights and also... It's a small town, and they're often kind of isolated in big houses by themselves, kind of off at, off in the country. Whereas, like, there's less there's less places to feel safe in the first one. with this film. It's, you just, you can't really be, they, they try really hard, but even, like, you're not even scared in the, in the scene where Randy dies. The shock of that is that, oh my God, it, it, it's kind of a shock. It's not like, it wasn't because you were scared the whole time.
1: yeah i mean it's it's hard for me though to count that as a negative because i think i actually really do like the shock that you get from that scene
0: well that scene i'm saying but but that that tone kind of stretches to the entire film because so much daylight so many crowds
1: yeah and also like this one definitely doesn't feel as scary as the first one uh i still think the opening scene of the original is like this like the series peak in terms of like tension and scare um but i i I do kind of enjoy what we traded it for, which is just this kind of like ambiguity as to like what to do and where to go from here and how to, how to handle it. Like it's not, it, it, it doesn't get to be as tight and as focused, but I do think that we did end up getting something out of that trade between like local small town with isolation to like college campus. Like, it's not like they try to do the same thing that they did in the first one where there is almost there there feels to be an acknowledgement of a change of setting that I I think they do some cool things with.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um so for me, i I think I'll give it uh 3.5 or 3.7. Since I cheat on the first one and give it uh 4.25, I'll give this one three point seven five. There you go. I, I like it a lot. It's it's a very solid sequel. Um, but it, for me, it, it it just lacks a little something there in the middle to kind of really elevate it to the, where the first one is. And even though I think the finale is pretty amazing and really brings the whole film back around and is just awesome for the for the entire ending, it it just it does lose a little bit of steam in the middle for me. So moving into the uh, box office and the reception,, uh, on its release, it earned one hundred and one million domestically and seventy one million in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of one hundred and seventy two million which I think is about $1 million less than what the first film made on its increase, on moderately increased $24 million budget, which is about $8 million more than the first one cost. It is the second highest grossing film in the series. As far as the critical reception, it holds an 82% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 63% on Metacritic, which is right about in the range of what the first film got. However, the audience score on the second film is only at 57%, compared to the, uh, the 79% audience score on the first film um and also the uh the, like I w- then i went over to metacritic is about the same as the first one but on imdb it has like a 6.1 compared to like the 7.2 of the first film so i'm not i'm really i'm really not sure like as far as from what I, I hear like dialogue online most people seem to like it but but apparently there's a, a there's a marked uh decline in people's uh, affection for this film as far as the critics uh overall people they seem pretty pleased with the movie it garnered like Pretty similar, very similar praise. Just, you know, the cleverness, the way to play with the genre, while also you know play, being a sequel, but also a you know worthy entry in its own right. Um, there was a lot of praise for uh, you know Craven's skill, you know creating tension. Um, and there are also the kind of the critics like, oh, it feels a lot like the first one. You know, we've, it feels you know familiar. We've seen it before. But even most of the the ones that do mention the familiarity were also kind of positive reviews who also just enjoy, enjoyed how entertaining it was. But yeah, so I suppose like what audience is thought at the time? I have no idea. I would have been like four years old when it came out.
1: Yeah, and so when it when it comes to talking about the film's legacy, you kind of made a a point that I think is very true in the first episode, which is this series as a whole doesn't have the same kind of legacy that the others have, in which the series identity is almost completely contained in the first one. And like usually there's an acknowledgement of like the first one is always the best kind of like with those other sequels but you know like when you think of Friday the the 13th you think of him in the mask and you think of like how ridiculous it gets that Jason goes to space and this and that Um, whereas these other sequels feel like their identity is completely trapped within the first one and that like if you mention Scream they're going to think about the first one. They're going to think about the Drew Barrymore death and the the reveal with Billy at the end and and all of that. Um and then, and then with, with Oh yeah, the sequel's okay. Yeah, with the acknowledgement <laughs> the, the, that like, oh, the sequel's pretty good. Yeah, there were uh there were sequels to that. Um and this wasn't a part of like our actual interaction as a podcast, but I was just talking about the movies on another Facebook group and there was somebody else who's just like, Yeah, I really like the first one, but you know, the sequels weren't good. And it so, there's also like there seems to be this this lumping in the second one with three and four, like I even really enjoy three and four.
0: That's just interesting. Cause in my experience, like most, like the, it, most of the legacy is, is, is on the first one. But when people do talk about the second film, like, yeah, the second one was pretty good. Yeah. There's, the third one there's the
1: definitely one. more of an understanding of the second one. Kind of like, yeah, that one, like that one was like when they were still kind of trying, but there are still like even fringes out there, like of other people who are, who do kind of, they like scream is the original and then there were sequels yeah
0: yeah so it's really not talked all that much about um but it, uh, of the sequels it's definitely the most respected and i know a couple of people who do, who do like it more than the first film not many but there's a, there's a couple all right uh so that was our review of scream 2 i hope you enjoyed it if you did again i would ask you to please head over to itunes and leave us a rating review and subscribe while you're at it and if you want to like us on Facebook, we're there as Franchise Feed Podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, we are on both of those sites as Franchised Pod. And if you want to find other other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFeedigPodcast.com and work we'll people follow you, James.
1: Uh, you can follow me on Letterboxd. I'm there as JL It's J L H A M R I. Uh and you can also follow us over on Facebook at the Outer Room, the Star Wars group. We are we just finished up uh, Rebels, didn't we? By the time this
0: episode comes out, we'll be like really close to finishing up. Rebels. Okay,
1: yeah. So definitely uh, join us over there if you if you want to catch up on that series, especially considering we're about to move into Rogue One and then the original trilogy. So uh, we're gonna have a lot of fun as we lead into Rise of Skywalker.
0: So I'm also on Letterbox, and there's Gabriel Green. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter as at Gabe Green, and I'm on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. So next week uh, we'll be talking about Scream Three, uh, which I know is the one everyone hates. I remember really enjoying it, uh, so I'm curious to see if it actually holds up, or if I was just, you know, a dumb kid at the time.
1: I think it's bad, but I really like it <laughs> still.
0: All right, uh, so until next week, uh, we will see you in Hollywood.
1: Now, if you'll excuse me, I have some oozing to do.
0: Lights, river, shine, rise. She said, oh, then only but I'm feeling quite weak. She said, Will you comfort and forgive
1: me? And she said,